What's up, guys? Tyler here, Talking Fitness Podcast, and today I have on special guest, Dr. James Sellers, DMP. James and I go back uh, pretty far. We were prior uh, partners together on an EMS helicopter. We flew patients all over the Southeast. Uh, He's an amazing clinician, super smart dude. Um, Today we talk about all things uh, COVID-19 as it relates to our local area. So give this one a listen, check it out, uh, and let me know what you think. I hope you guys are staying safe, doing well. Keep on moving, keep doing fitness, and we will see you guys soon. All right, guys. So what's up? Thanks for uh, tuning in. So I'll probably just use the audio from this. I don't know. Uh, Real quick introduction. You guys know me. I've got James Sellers, uh, Dr. James Sellers, right? That's correct. DNP. So James, you work in a local ER as well as a um, uh, urgent care, right? I do. I'm a nurse practitioner in the local emergency rooms. Uh, that's my full-time practice, and I do a little bit of relief work at an urgent care uh, in the Panhandle. But my full-time practice is emergency medicine. Cool. So funny story. James and I actually worked together 2014 to uh, when? When did they uh, abruptly end that? 17? Uh, way, way too soon. Yeah, 17. Yeah. So we worked together on uh, a EMS helicopter. It was good times. Very good times. Saving lives. Um, I, I do have to tell a story, though, that our very first shift together, <laughs> I had a long conversation with Tyler about what are you going to do with your life and that this will not last forever. So develop an exit strategy now. And that exit strategy ended up being opening uh, the gym, opening the gym, which is now closed. So thanks. (laughs) (laughs) That part wasn't my fault. That's not your fault. So cool, man. That's a long time. Interesting stuff. We know a lot of the same people, you know, some of the people too, that'll probably listen to this. Um, So basically what I was going to jump into, and I got some questions on my phone on a local level, with this whole COVID-19, what are, what are you seeing locally? And we kind of talked about that earlier. Some of the things we've seen aren't necessarily directly COVID-19. What we're seeing locally is that the, uh, I think the social isolation is, is for the most part, uh, resulted in much less ER use in the area. Uh, uh, I think if you, if, you, if you happen to be in the healthcare system, You'll, you'll understand the term frequent flyer, but there's some people that return to the emergency room over and over again. There's people that return to the emergency room for things that aren't necessarily emergency room material or, or things that should be probably handled with something like over-the-counter medications. But we see those people in the emergency room over and over, and that's also probably become what I call the bread and butter emergency medicine, daily routine problems that, that people seek emergency care for. Uh, those folks have pretty much dried up. In a typical shift where I might see uh, 30 or 40 people, I'm seeing six to seven maybe. Um, On the flip side, though, those six or seven that are showing up are typically the sickest of the sick and probably should have come in sooner. But as most will say, well, I heeded those warnings. My family told me, don't go to the emergency room. You're going to get the COVID-19. So that's one of the biggest things we've seen. Secondly, I'd say that the impact that other places are seeing, of course, like New York, you see in the news, New Orleans, uh, those are the extreme cases of, of the, the thousands of people. 
we're always seeing uh, we'll see people come in with symptoms, but they usually get most get ruled as, as far as having COVID-19. Uh, so we don't really see the impact here. Now, a lot of the emphasis is put on the folks, I think, to get hospitalized with COVID-19. But there's dozens of people in the community that uh, have either confirmed cases or are highly suspected of having COVID-19 that are self-quarantining at home. So if you come in the emergency room with flu-like symptoms, you get tested, you're found to be positive with COVID-19, you may not necessarily get uh, admitted to the hospital. A lot of folks will actually go home. And there's a number of factors that play into that as determining what stays and what goes home. And it has to do with how sick people are. Uh, if you've got severe symptoms, if your laboratory work is grossly abnormal, the chest x-ray is abnormal, uh, then you know, things like that. If you have a lot of comorbidities, uh, heart conditions, age, diabetes, those kind of things, that ups the ante a little bit in terms of suspicion for uh, a patient's ability to survive. And those will usually get admitted. If you've got very mild symptoms, you're a healthy person, you don't have comorbidities that are significantly affecting your daily life. Uh, then a lot of times you'll end up going home to, to self-manage and self-care as long as you can quarantine. How long uh, is it taking you guys to get those test results back if you're testing them in the ER? Uh, well, some of the, the contracts that some of the local facilities are using uh, can take anywhere from 24 hours to two weeks. Um, I've, I've seen and heard of different facilities changing contracts uh, using the state laboratory, going to local facilities like LabCorp, for example, uh, seems like the commercial labs tend to have a little quicker turnaround. Uh, I had an exposure to a patient that was suspicious for COVID. I found out within 24 hours if he was positive or negative. Um, yeah, I think that's the big thing is like, so if you come in the ER and you got symptoms, and it looks like it, then you pretty much just say, yeah, you probably have it. We'll test you, but everything else looks normal. We'll call you in 24 hours. It's not like they're sitting there waiting to find out. Right. And, and we've got very uh, specific criteria at my facility to when we'll even initiate the testing. Um, you know, again, a lot of people can use that outpatient testing source, and that probably even give a, a quicker result than what we sometimes get in the hospital. Is that like they're, the drive-through? Exactly. And there's, yeah. you know, at first one, one facility in the area opened up one, a couple other weeks, uh, there were two other testing sites. I think there may be, maybe be more around here now. I haven't kept up with where and what they're opening up at. Yeah. Um, in terms of like, uh, like the patients that you're seeing that have it, well, I don't even know if you guys are seeing that many patients that have it. The ones that are getting super sick, though, fall into that category. They're not, they're not um, young, healthy adults for the most part. Not typically, but I, I can think of uh, early on there were a few um, cases we saw where they were young people uh, that were otherwise healthy. But, but strangely enough, if I remember correctly, all three or four of them that we saw or that I, you know, knew of also vaped, which I thought was very interesting because otherwise yeah. I don't think they would have necessarily uh, even been tested or been in the hospital. But um, it was, uh, you know, when you look at all the common factors, they were all young men. They were all, they were active duty military. So, you know, they've got 
some baseline level of health and fitness that's probably a little superior to most people in the community. And uh, but they all vaped, and they all had uh, significant symptoms. They all recovered. They were all fine. So you guys, so you are seeing patients with it then, all ages, at at where yes. you're at. Yes, and it, it, we're we're seeing cases, and then we're we're seeing cases that we call suspicious for COVID nineteen, because again, not everybody's getting tested. I, yeah. We I don't think we truly have a real appreciation for the prevalence of what this is in the community or, or anywhere uh, due to the lack of testing in the early stages. Uh, and even then, there's, there's no such thing as a perfect test. Um, the, yeah. the, the test we're using right now has what we call a sensitivity of about 70%. That means it'll pick up about 70% of the cases. Uh, I use the analogy, if I gave you 10 Skittles and I told you that seven of them were good and three of them were poisonous, how many would you eat? You know, and you would I'd eat, take I'd eat three of them. <laughs> Chances are you're going to die, Tyler. <laughs> no, but when we look at testing, uh, there's no perfect test. You get false negatives, you get false positives. Of course, we worry most about the false negatives. Yeah. Uh, even the flu test uh, is the flu test has a sensitivity of about seventy percent as well. So you're going to miss three out of ten. At some point in the flu season every year, the CDC guidelines change, and this is every year. They say at this point, the flu is so prevalent, don't even test. If someone shows up with flu-like symptoms, treat them clinically as if it is flu and don't even worry about testing. Yeah. I've seen people up with that false negative and not get tested when they, they could have been treated a little differently. COVID-19 is kind of the same way earlier on. If you had the signs and symptoms, you made a clinical diagnosis without the test. That's one of those things, like we say in EMS, Tyler, one of this one, treat the patient, not the monitor. So regardless yeah. of what your monitor testing is showing, uh, you treat the patient clinically uh, and don't worry about what your tests come up necessarily. Right. Uh, I, in terms of like, I think too, I think you're right though. I think there's a lot of people that probably have it that like just don't know. Like for me, if I woke up tomorrow with a fever, like, I don't know if I'd necessarily like run out and like go get a test because I don't think it would change yeah. anything. I think you guys would just send me home anyway. <laughs> and now I don't I have would, to avoid I, being a number on, on someone's chart. I, I would make sure you probably got tested, but it may not be for COVID-19, but that's just <laughs> psychiatric uh, evaluation or something. But, there's a lot of other but things. There, I there are some people. Yeah, I, I know. There are some people that, that do tend to run the emergency room sooner. Again, we've seen less of those people lately, but we still have some people that will come in and uh, request testing, demand testing, get upset when they have no symptoms and they have no exposures and they've got no very few risk. And those are the people that should be following up with the testing centers. So in terms of like local hospitals, we're, and I've talked to other, other people from other hospitals, we're nowhere near, like, we're not even at normal capacity right now. No, um, like, like I said, for, for me, uh, where the places are that I work, I typically will see, you know, two to three dozen patients in a, in a 10 hour shift and uh, the volumes have significantly decreased. And as for what, nurse practitioners and physician assistants typically see, and that's for the physician counterparts as well, their volumes are much lower. Um, just as many people coming, but again, 
your your incentive finding those sicker patients are are going up. The sicker the sick are are coming in. So it's just What's like a waiting happen? game. Like you guys are just waiting for this, anticipating this giant rush of people. Yeah. Now there there's certainly been some staffing reductions and some downsizing. Um, it's been from the provider standpoint. I've seen a lot of nursing staff and the technical staff uh, being sent home early or sent home on call uh, just for the, the lack of volume. The hospital census, uh, as far as how many patients are actually in the hospital, uh, from what I've seen directly at my facilities or in talking with colleagues at other facilities, their census has been down as well. Um, yeah. Which makes you question, what are people really going to the hospital for uh, and should be staying home for? But I, I think any any action you take has good and bad consequences. I'll give you a, a good uh, example of that of a person I recently took care of that had a condition that really should have been taken care of sooner, like much sooner. Like this guy was really sick, but he said, hey, everything in the news and everyone in my family said, hey, you go to the emergency room, you're going to catch COVID-19 and die. Well, unfortunately, his condition that he came in with uh, actually does put him at risk for mortality. So there's a, there's a, there's a flip side to, to, both, yeah. to both sides of the coin. Uh, in terms of like uh, normalcy, you know, ever, uh, the big question is like, I think it's funny, you know, especially in the small business world, everyone's waiting for like this 30 day mark. Like, like when we hit 30 days, they're just going to pull the plug out and everybody can just go back to normal. I don't think that that's the case. And I honestly don't think we'll see anything, any normalcy until there's some type of treatment or a vaccine or something. I mean, do you, okay. do you think that? Well, I think a lot of those predictions of 30 days were, were made on the assumption, and, and that this is still being talked about, that in the next, you know, right now, two to three weeks, and some people say next week, there's going to be this massive onslaught of patients that, uh, just wake up one day and are sick. I think the problem with some predictions like that is you you, you take evidence or, or previous events and try to extrapolate data from the data you've already got and the data that we already have, and we kind of talked about this, we don't have a real sense of what the prevalence has been. So it's difficult to make predictions based off the prevalence when we don't even know what it is. So are we at a peak? Well, we don't know. We may have already had a peak and gone back down because we've not tested uh, yeah. early on. So that 30-day thing, is there is there a rush coming on? I, I, I don't know. Um, Do you think we'll just be able to go back to like normal life? Uh, I hope so. Um, looking at the numbers that come in here again, they're, they've picked up a little bit in terms of the sicker folks. But um, just, there's just no way of knowing at this point. I think anyone who says it's going to be so many days or so many weeks, you got to wonder where are they getting that information from? How are they interpreting the data they already have to make a prediction when we know the data that we already have is most likely inadequate? So it's difficult. Yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking, is, are they just going to let people slowly go back into society and like, let everybody kind of just catch it. <laughs> that... Well, you know that. Well, that's certainly been one of the uh, the how is this going to end scenarios? Is that herd immunity kick in? Uh, it's just that's a that's a long term process. But when you look at other pandemics we've had in the past, uh, vaccines were were a big part 
of the treatment, but then herd immunity. Everyone starts getting it and passes around antibodies. And, and eventually you eradicate it that way. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering is like, how, how would we just say, okay, everybody go back to doing whatever you were doing in 30 days. And if it's still here anywhere, like anywhere in the world, you, it's not going to go. I don't think it's going away. I think it'll be, yeah. I, think, I think it's going to be here. I, I think until, this is my opinion, and certainly nothing I say constitutes you know, a, a, <laughs> a provider-patient relationship here. Yeah. Uh, my personal opinion is that until there's a vaccine that's out, I don't think we'll truly get rid of this. As you said, you look at other pandemics, like polio, for example. We didn't kick polio out until we got vaccinations for it. And it's probably going to take a good year to get a, a good solid vaccine for this. And what do you think about the hydro? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I said, even once you get a vaccine, it doesn't mean you're going to get immunity. Uh, I've had the flu shot every year that's been out since I've been in healthcare. And there's been a couple of years where I still got influenza. It just depends on the strains. And, and there's too many factors involved in that. I mean, it works. It works most of the time for most people in most circumstances, but there's no perfect vaccine for anything. So even if I get a COVID-19 vaccine, I still may catch COVID-19 from somewhere or somebody. The, the treatments, you know, again, this is, this is such a new thing. It's a novel virus. I mean, we've never seen this before. So no one has a natural immunity. There's other coronaviruses out there. This one just tends to be particularly uh, bad on our system, and it's fast. The treatments that are out there now, we're, we're just starting to experiment with. So there's no real strong evidence that's been scientifically proven. Most of the results we're seeing with some of these drugs, like uh, like the one you just mentioned, or using Zithromax, all the results are anecdotal. It's not scientifically tested. So in a lot of cases, those treatments, uh, I don't want to use the word last-ditch effort, but it's not something that a lot of folks are using right out of the gate. As as they started talking about being used, the, the, the storage or the, the availability of this medication started drying up. Uh, when President Trump gave his uh, speech on that, I think about two weeks ago, and started mentioning it for the first time, within probably 12 hours, I had 20 to 30 friends of mine message me saying, hey, prescribe me these meds. I did not do it. <laughs> but, you know, it just, it's... So I those, saw where the governor got a million, uh, a million of them shipped to the U.S. I saw that yesterday. A million to Florida from some pharmacy in India, a million doses of hydrochloroquine, which is funny because I actually took that when I was in Costa Rica prophylactically to, malaria. Not, yeah, to not get malaria. Um, so it, I think that's interesting, though. I mean, for me... I would take it. <laughs> and Tyler was not one of the friends that called me wanting it. But I, there's so much, there's more to it just taking the drug. Uh, yeah. there, there's things such as, uh, oh, how much should I take for each dose? How many times, Dan, for how often? I, I, I like analogies. Um, Cipro, for example, is used, it's an antibiotic used for urinary tract infection. If you're using it for UTI, you take it twice a day typically for three days, and that clears up most urinary tract infections. If you're taking it for some of the stomach conditions we treated for, like reticulitis, for example, you can take it twice a day for 10 to 14 days. So it depends on how you're using it as, as to what your dosing is going to be. So just taking it isn't necessarily going to work. There's, there's more to it than just taking the drug. 
Yeah, that's the thing that I guess they don't know is you don't know what's the what's the proper dosage for it without any clinical studies. Yeah, you can't say yeah, hey, take take this much or don't take that much. So I I see where that definitely gets like. And that's why I say everything in this part, for the most part, is anecdotal. You don't have any scientific pinning to hang on it. And and when you when you've got something like COVID, you're not just letting the patient sit there and be like, okay, we're not doing anything. We're going to do, do these drugs, see if it helps. There's a, a multiple layered approach to the things that you do uh, in terms of if you have to intubate them, what are their settings, what medications are you using for sedation, are you keeping them sitting up, or are you putting them prone or face down? You're doing all these things at once. What are the medications are you getting? So you throw those medications in there and you get a change. Was it those medications or was it the other things you're doing? You don't really yeah. know. If all yeah. else is equal and you add one thing and you see a change, well, you can kind of infer that the, the change was the result of those medications you gave. But you're doing so many other things at the same time, it's hard to say, well, hey, I got Zithromax and that malaria drug and, and I was cured. Well, you were also getting out of bed. You had certain kind of diets. You had other medications that were being given respiratory therapy was doing percussion therapy on you five times a day you don't really know what it was that gave you the change that you're looking for so that's kind of like with tamiflu i had the flu a couple years ago it was like the first time i ever had it i took tamiflu and didn't notice i don't know if it did anything or not yeah yeah, that happens a lot Uh, i took tamiflu a few years ago and within a day and a half i was i was almost cured so yeah you just don't you just don't know you don't know one Speaking of the flu, think, how do you think it compares to the flu? I mean, in terms of like, and we know in healthcare, like some of the sickest patients I've ever transported and were from the flu, like yeah. sick-wise. Well, you know, the, the tricky part is that a lot of the initial symptoms are very similar. Uh, fever, body aches, chills, nausea, cough, sinus pain, pressure, runny nose, sore throat. All those things kind of tie them together, and you see them all the same. Um, I know I sit around on Facebook a lot, like most people, and I always see these posts from different people about, hey, but the flu killed 10,000 times more people yeah. than COVID-19 at some point. Um, yeah, that, that, that's true, although our numbers are, are climbing. I think one of the things that makes this different and what scares me is how fast this hits those people that are most vulnerable. Uh, at first, when we saw this Corona-19 hitting the news and you know, we were encouraged to practice good PPE and not expose ourselves endlessly, I'm like, oh, great. I lived through SARS. I lived through MERS. I survived H1N1. I've been yeah. the flu every year. So obviously I was on guard, but I wasn't scared or terrified. But as I've seen some of these patients who have not done well, how fast like their chest x-ray changes in a matter of hours. That was, that was probably my first moment where I was like, this kind of scares me uh, because it happens so fast. Again, yeah. to those vulnerable patients. I know some folks that have been at home, self-quarantined, and they've done fine. They've recovered, or we suspect they've recovered. But uh, some of these folks that do get sick, it happens so fast. And since it is a novel virus, it's something we've never seen before, we have no natural immunity to it. So our bodies are not able to really fight it off. But one yeah. of the treatments I think show some promise, though, along those same lines, 
is that if you have, uh, they're, they're going to start doing this here soon in the local area, and I know they've done it in other places, and they're calling this a convalescent treatment. In other words, it's like, this is our last ditch that we can do. But what they're doing is taking those people that have had positive tests who are now negative and been symptom-free for, I think, 10 days, they will draw their blood, spin all the, the red out to your left with nothing but the plasma or the, the white liquid part of the blood. That's where a lot of the antibodies for any disease that you fought off and won uh, exists. So if we can take that plasma out, which should be rich in IgG or that type of immunoglobulin that, that will help fight that disease, take that out and administer it to people that are really, really sick. And that's giving them the antibody or the ability to fight it off. It's still a new thing. Uh, it's just getting started. And I think I, I heard that someone here in the local areas is, is going to start trying to get started doing that like real time right now. I need to be able to buy that on the internet. You probably can. I, I will sell you some. It won't be real, but I'll take it. Hey, now, do you think, um, you know what else is funny is like you hear these people, they're like, yeah, it causes this thing called, called ARDS. Like it's some kind of like new thing, which I love when people talk about ARDS, like the general public. And they're yeah. like, yeah, it causes this thing called ARDS. Watch this YouTube video. And I'm like, yeah. that's been around for a really long time. <laughs> it has been around a long time. What's interesting, I didn't know you were going to bring that one up. Um, but what's interesting about ARDS is there's a very specific approach to the treatment of ARDS. And for example, most people ARDS are, are going to be intubated or on, you know, they have a breathing tube placed in and the machine is breathing for them. With, with ARDS, one of the problems is that that tiny little layer of cells between the alveoli and the capillary membranes, uh, it, it's only about one cell thick where that gas exchange takes place. Oxygen goes in carbon dioxide goes out. With ARDS, that, that one cell membrane is pushed apart by what we call exudate, or literally pus, little deposits that get in that, that tiny little space and separate those tissues and it inhibits gas exchange. One of the ways that you overcome that is to put a lot of high pressure in that breathing circuit and you recruit more alveoli that way and it kind of pushes that exudate out and down so that that one little membrane where gas change takes place is better facilitated. Uh, with people with COVID-19, they've been looking like ARDS. You look at the chest x-ray, it has an ARDS presentation to it. You do a CT of the chest, has an ARDS presentation to it. We've put some people on that high pressure ventilation and they've done worse. And one of the things that's just come out this week, something that they're starting to kind of figure out is that it's not a true ARDS uh, problem developing, it's an entirely different process that looks like ARDS. It's got to do with red blood cells. We know that red blood cells have hemoglobin, which is a, which is a, a part of red blood cell that is very attractive oxygen. That's how we transport oxygen. Oxygen attaches to hemoglobin. Our red blood cells transport it around for tissue to use. What's happening, or what we suspect at this point is having COVID-19, is that COVID-19 is actually affecting the hemoglobin on the cell and causing it to not be able to attach oxygen like it should. So folks are coming in very hypoxic, but with otherwise essentially normal working lungs, but the, the hemoglobin can't pull that oxygen and, and deliver it to where it needs. So people are getting very hypoxic. When that's happening in the lung, 
is they're looking like ARDS, but they're not really ARDS. And through that disease process, the lungs become fragile, you put lots of pressure, and you're causing more tissue damage. And you're not, you're not solving the problem. You're not increasing yeah. oxygen transport. And a good thing is, you know, when you get hypoxic, you're, and you guys are all athletes, you've probably heard of this, your kidneys will release a substance called epoitin or EPO, we call it. That, that will trigger your bone marrow to produce more red blood cells. Hopefully, if they're new, so they won't be affected. So when we see people that are hypoxic but have high hemoglobins in their blood, well, typically, that's one of your suspicion factors for, for COVID-19. Yeah, and for those that don't know, ARDS is acute respiratory distress syndrome. And coming from somebody who's dealt with it, both of us, they are one of the most difficult patients to manage on a ventilator. So like in the news you're hearing right now, like, oh, we need more ventilators, ventilators, ventilators. And what I thought was interesting too, is they're like, yeah, we can put two patients on one ventilator, which is kind of funny to me because I don't, I don't think that's possible with a patient who's on ARDS unless both patients have the same settings. But it is an interesting thing um, where they're talking about putting two patients on one vent. Uh, I don't see how that would work. I mean, it's hard to manage one patient with ARDS. And just from my experience, they're, they're so sensitive to changes. I don't know how you would put two patients on, on one, you know? I, I've not actually seen that work, and I've questioned that as soon as they uh, started putting that out, that they can conceptually put up to four people on one ventilator. Yeah. And uh, I've not seen it done. I was reading up something, and, of course, the, the hallmark statement, and there is, this is less than ideal. Well, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. I've not read any further than the headlines on that because I looked at it, and I was like, whatever. Well, what's Tyler doing on Facebook today? Uh, yeah. So I flipped over to something else. But, uh, you know, I, the only way I can see that working is both those patients have to be completely comatose, which if they have ARDS, they will be. Yeah. And their, their things would have to match exactly uh, yeah. their, their needs. And I've, I've taken care of ARDS patients in the ICU. Tyler and I have flown them in the helicopter before. That requires like real time changing sometimes. So I just don't see how yeah, and for those that don't know, when someone has something like that, there's somebody that there's sits in that room and pretty much watches that patient 24 hours a day. They're not just yeah. like and left. Um, which they're what I, we call one on one. There'll be one nurse for that one patient. They won't share patients. Uh, there'll be one provider and respiratory therapies in there constantly. So real quick before we run out of time, what do you think in terms of obviously like you know fitness and health, how great of an impact do you think it has in increasing your chances of having, um, not being asymptomatic, but less serious symptoms with something like this? Well, I think, you know, there, there's a thing we, we will sometimes refer to as health reserves. How healthy is some person? How capable is their body to fend off and ward off, you know, disease? Um, fitness always plays a part into your reserves. Um, you know, you, you take me now and me 20 years ago, I could run faster. I could lift more. I, could, I had more staying power, had more reserves. Then I had a much healthier lifestyle. Uh, exercising uh, and eating properly can't be more stress at this point, uh, because if you're going to fight this off, 
we don't really know what's going to help you so much at this point because we're still learning a lot about this. But we know that the healthier you are, the better you're going to do. Uh, one of the oldest patients I had, uh, she was elderly, but she had a very, very good baseline health for her age. And she did well for a while. It just it, I think it all took a toll eventually. But uh, you got to get reserves. And we know reserves are a product of, of a number of things. Your genetics, you can't do anything about. But what you eat, how much you exercise, how much you get, uh, your, your baseline health is going to greatly impact your ability to, to fight off, recover, get back to normal. So I should be able to open my gym then is what you're saying. Probably yesterday. <laughs> you're probably too late. Hey, there's a lot of people pushing, obviously pushing supplements right now, immunity support supplements. I've never been a huge fan of that. I mean, I think that anything is better, but especially right now, zinc is one I'm seeing, uh, vitamin C I'm seeing. Can you take a supplement orally that is going to have any, any real impact on you? I guess it would, you could still catch the virus, but have any impact on you, like not having as serious uh, symptoms from it? Well, my wife sells essential oils, so I'm sure she would say absolutely, and she would sell you all of the product you need, and I would encourage you to uh. do that. <laughs> uh, seriously, on a serious note, you know, there, again, I, 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 I take a very scientific approach to this. Yeah. And when you look at, at the true research, and when I say true research, I mean those, that research done by those who truly have no gain in producing a study. Uh, and, and keep it in mind, let me, let me step back a minute. There are studies that are not good studies. Uh, you, you have to look at the methodology and how the study was conducted. Or, you know, I've seen a study that, hey, this study shows this. And you look at the cohort and there were 10 people in it. Well, that's not yeah. a significant study. That's not statistically pertinent or, or relative uh, or significant. Um, there, there has been a number of things that show that zinc has great antiviral properties to it. Uh, same goes with vitamin C. Now, we do know that vitamin C, like when we use it uh, in, in the course of sepsis now, vitamin C works really, really well helping recover from, from sepsis. So I, I think there's a definite place for that. I can't point to one particular paper or scientist who says, hey, this is it right here, the next wonder drug. Um, now, is, I, that, I, is that vitamin C being taken orally or is it being or, given... Yeah. Usually it's by injection. It's given through an IV. And, but that, you, you still absorb amount of vitamin C orally. Your gut will absorb that stuff uh, up to a point. You can only, your body will only absorb so much vitamin C per day and then you pass that. If you've ever eaten a bunch of vitamin C and got diarrhea, that's usually your body's saying, like, I'm not <laughs> absorbing any more vitamin C. I'm dumping it out, what, what I'm not using. So, and I know some people out there have, I know, I know you're there. <laughs> well, cool, man. I appreciate it. It was good talking to you. We got two minutes before it kicks us off of this. Um, I hope that you don't get the coronavirus. Um, <laughs> I'm protecting myself. So, yeah, I know a lot of people said with this last minute, I'll use this. A lot of people think they already had it, that it's been here longer. It, well, we've, we've got, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but we do know for a fact that the virus was out much longer than, uh, than China has admitted it has. And I'll say another anecdote. I like that word anecdotal. I use it anecdotally all the time. Uh, <laughs> a lot of 
a lot of us noticed that late December, January, and right up to right before the announcement was really made that it was here, we were seeing a ton of people in the emergency room with flu-like symptoms that were all negative for flu. Now, I know there's no perfect test, like I said, but uh, there were so many people that we were all, we all noticed the trend and we we're like, y'all know why this is happening. Maybe it's too early. The test isn't working. The, it's, we're not getting a good sample. Uh, but that, that was one of the things we did notice. And now looking back, it's like, hmm, maybe that was Corona. We were noticing, one of the first things that we had said, you know, with Corona testing or suspected Corona, less than 2% of the population that had Corona had flu at the same time. So we did a flu test and it was positive. We were ruling out Corona at that point, but now mm. we're seeing it's changed. We see a Corona probably less than 2% don't have flu. So it's almost reversed. This thing's changing so fast. And again, going back to kind of like my fear of this thing, by the time we think we got it figured out, it changes. Yeah. Well, that's good news. Thanks. Um, <laughs> yeah. Maybe <laughs> well, don't open your gym today. Hey, well, thanks, six man. Got lots of room. That is true. That is true. Well, I appreciate it, dude. Stay safe. Yeah. Keep saving lives if they don't lay you off first. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for having me, and, and best of luck to you and all all the guys from the gym, girls, guys, everybody there. I hope everyone stays safe. Have me again sometime. Glad to talk. All right, man. I'll see you later. Thanks, bud. Bye. All right, bye.